0: Well, hello, Todd, and it looks like today it's going to be you and I to talk about a uh, airplane crash that is not really an accident.
2: And so unfortunately, that's, that's true for so many of the ones we talk about, and this is no exception.
0: So how are you doing today? I haven't seen you in, in a, 10 days, I think.
2: Well, I've been laying low, enjoying the uh, bright sunshine here in Massachusetts, which is the uh, beginning of the summer for us which means temperatures are heating up. And as you know, I'm getting my uh, uh, instrument rating, so I'm flying more frequently. Weather has turned warmer, so I have to keep a, a close eye on the weather and the performance of the aircraft. And again, doing the very careful steps that one must do when one flies. And you can't take anything for granted. A change in weather may mean a change in tactics. A change in the behavior of people around you might mean a change of tactics one of the things that is happening here nothing to do with aviation directly is the u.s open golf championship is taking place at the brookline country club which as the crow flies is about two miles from where i am and just out of interest for what kind of restrictions might happen with aviation i looked up a temporary flight restriction for the event and indeed there is and it's not just your regular temporary type uh, temporary flight restriction This is a national defense related flight restriction. And I read the warning and any of you with ForeFlight or any of the other uh, services where you can do this live, go ahead and do it yourself. Uh, This is for an event that's happening in mid June. Uh, Deadly force is authorized. Law enforcement will chase after you if you do something. It's from zero to a thousand feet. And as many of you know, I fly drones. I thought, oh, what restrictions do they have on drones? Yes, they can fly. But only if you're related to law enforcement, search and rescue, the event itself, have signed um, whatever authorization is necessary for you to fly there. So basically, a message to all of you out there, if you're near an event that's of high interest, a sporting event, let's say, baseball game, football game, US Open, et cetera, and you think, oh, I can fly my drone there or fly my airplane over there just so I can take some pictures and take a look at it. Be forewarned. One, check and see if there's a restriction over flying in or near that area. Two, if you feel the urge to violate that restriction, I would highly recommend you don't.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll bet you there'll be somebody that'll do it. Oh, of course.
2: And uh, there's, uh, again the world is such that no matter what rules are in place, there's always a small percentage of people who think the rules don't apply to them. And within that small percentage of people, there's a smaller percentage who think, I can outsmart the government, law enforcement, uh, big businesses, et cetera, and do the thing I want to do just for the heck of it. Maybe you can. Do you really want to face the consequences if you can't?
0: Especially here. Fortunately, not a lot of... Uh, normal general aviation traffic in that area because of the approaches to Logan Airport is quite busy.
2: That's right. We're in Class B airspace here. I'm um, About eight nautical miles as the crow flies from Logan Airport. And even if you're flying your uh, unmanned aerial uh, aircraft system, your drone, uh, the floor of Class B airspace or Class G airspace with respect to flying drones is only 300 feet, where typically in Class G airspace, it's a 400 foot limit. But class B, for my purposes, if I'm flying, where I am right now, is only 300 feet.
0: Yeah, so it'll be good to see. It'll be a whole week to see if we get somebody that that wants to uh, test uh, the FAA and law enforcement.
2: And this is something that will play into our accident later on. One of the things about the modern era of aviation is that especially if you're in class B airspace, aircraft are required to have ADS-B out, which means they're constantly sending out a signal that can be received by receivers. I have one on my windowsill over here and uploaded to various services where you can go back in time and see what aircraft was flying, where and how high at a particular time. And in fact, for the event we're talking about today, um, there is an NTSB preliminary report, no public docket, no real detail about the flight path, et cetera, but you can go onto a service like Flight Radar 24, type in the tail number of the aircraft, which we did, and you can see the flight path of the aircraft, the altitude, the airspeed, et cetera. So if you're breaking the rules in the sky, there's always an eye in the sky, it may not be live, but you leave a trail, and that trail can be found later on.
0: And good luck with a visible visibility event like this to play games with it. Well, we got an interesting event to talk about today, and I didn't call it an accident. I call it an event because the airplane did crash, but there was absolutely nothing wrong with the airplane, and it didn't go in because of CFIT. fit. It went in for a whole string of other problems that were that uh, this particular pilot had, and you know, and it's not a, not an inexpensive airplane. So sometimes we have a lot of people to fly airplanes that have more money than brains. And uh, this guy certainly may fit into that category, although there is a a, a possibility that he could have had a medical event on the, on this particular flight, but that had nothing to do with his lack of qualifications, which we're going to talk about in a moment, about this, this individual and, and how he fell through the cracks. One would think that after... Uh, uh, the events of nine eleven, and uh, all the FBOs and all the tightening that we've done in the system, that a, and an individual like this might uh, might experience some problems getting into the air. But clearly, he had absolutely no trouble taking this airplane up, and, and uh, fortunately, he was all alone on the airplane. So it's a one fatal accident. It's a Cessna five hundred and sixty citation. So it's not an inexpensive airplane. Uh, It was a clear day. Uh, You know, we had a 10,000 foot ceiling. So it was wide open. It's in the Pacific Northwest, in and around uh, Mount Rainier. So it's, uh, it must have been a good view. Too bad it didn't last very long.
2: Unfortunately, and point of fact, this was a little bit south of Mount Rainier. They took off. He took off from the uh, Portland area and the flight path took him just south of Mount hood, which if any of you are familiar with it's that classic cone shaped volcano. That's in Northern Oregon. The top of that volcano is about 11,000 feet. And when he was passing by the volcano looks like well under 10 nautical miles from it, he was at about 13,000 feet. So he was a safe, safely above the top of the volcano, but because of the flight path and his lack of response to ATC during some of his uh, radio calls to them, they were concerned that uh, he changed direction and get further away from the mountain. So again, as we said before, there are several things that didn't seem right about this from the beginning. And the beginning actually happens well before this flight. Uh, This person had purchased the airplane. According to the report, he had been down in Arizona getting a type certificate rating for this particular aircraft. And apparently the owner of this facility said that this person not only didn't demonstrate the capability necessary to be signed off for a type certificate, but he was not even signed off for single pilot operation. And this was apparently the first time he had flown this aircraft alone.
0: Wow. Yeah, I guess it's, no, it's just uh, as you were talking, I was looking at some of the tech, the conversations between the tower and the co- and the airplane. And uh, they were asking him to do things that he just didn't do, including they told him to turn right. And he turned left heading direct to it, to a waypoint that they didn't ask him to. Uh, they asked him to climb to 15,000 feet, which he didn't. He descended to 10. I mean, it's just, I mean, uh, this, this guy might've had some, he wasn't young. He was 72 years old. I think it was. Go back and look.
2: He was 72. That's correct. And looking at some other uh, non-NTSB information, it would appear that this person had quite a long uh, career in and around aviation and as a pilot. So he wasn't new to this game. And he was doing things that even for a junior pilot, you would think, why would he do that? For example, he's asking for an IFR clearance. Air traffic control gives him the clearance with the details of it. And standard practice is you read back the clearance to acknowledge that you understood it. And he either didn't read back the clearances or just read back a part of the clearance. Not enough to make it clear to anyone listening to the conversation. This person understood what was asked of him. And clearly from his uh, activities he did in the air, he didn't follow up on some of the things that were requested of him. And when you're flying IFR or flying at all, if air traffic control gives you an altitude, a bearing, et cetera, to fly on. And you don't fly fly on that. You could put other people in danger. Now, they were looking out for him, of course, but again, they're paying attention to this particular pilot. There might be people in the area who are not as sophisticated as he could be, let's say a VFR pilot, flying as they should in the proper airspace. And you have an aircraft that's not in the proper airspace. You can imagine the kind of trouble that can cause.
0: Todd, this is certainly an interesting character to say the least. Um, Uh, Aviation is full of interesting
2: characters and there's nothing wrong with being an interesting character. The thing is, no matter what kind of character you are, no matter what kind of experience you have, no matter how good you think you are, um, we all fly by the same set of rules. And we have to, because otherwise we'll get in each other's way. And that would lead to a less than happy flight for all involved.
0: How true, how true. You know, part of what I say at the end of every show is put that head on a swivel, uh, because you got to look out for people. I mean, we've had every year we have a number of mid airs because people are not having their head on the swivel, and uh, you know, that's that's really a waste of life. Usually, you know, some once in a while somebody might be able to get the airplane on the ground, but usually it's not. The outcome is not good. So let's go back and talk to some of the, this uh, this guys background you were pulling some of that up that's
2: right apparently yeah, this person like i said before had been involved in aviation for some time and apparently owned a small a commuter airline out in the western united states so this was not unfamiliar territory for him and it the the, the preliminary report didn't give the background of this pilot except to say that he was a private pilot and uh, he, it didn't say whether or not he was also instrument rated, but he was at least a private pilot certificate. But a Cessna Citation is a twin-engine turbine-powered aircraft, not a simple aircraft, and it's not something you get with just with a you know 40, 50 hours and you know the kind of certificate you would get to fly a Cessna, a smaller Cessna, a single-engine Cessna. Uh, this was a sophisticated airplane. It was an older airframe; it was manufactured in 1989. But nothing in the preliminary report said that aging or system failure or system malfunctions had anything to do with this. And typically an airplane like this is perfectly good to fly, even if it's 30 plus years old. It's a question of, is it being operated properly? Now, it is allowed to operate this kind of aircraft with a single pilot, just as it is legal to operate a wide variety of fairly sophisticated and capable aircraft with a single pilot. But when you're doing single pilot IFR, the kinds of workload you might have at various parts of the flight means you have to be on top of your game. You can't go out there and and halfway do it and not read back clearances from air traffic control. That's just not how it's done. Now, that said, looking at the report, it seemed as though this person was acting in a way that was consistent with hypoxia early on in the flight. But again, that didn't make sense on one level because where he took off was near sea level. He had never risen above, let's say, 13, 14, 15,000 feet. So it wasn't like he was at a high cabin altitude for an extended period of time where hypoxia could have been an issue. There might have been something in the way of carbon monoxide poisoning or who knows, some sort of environmental issue within the aircraft. There was nothing specified about that in the report, nothing about a toxicological report, the kind of thing you would see in the public document. And the thing that made the most sense is, well, the other thing that made sense was, was there a medical issue? This is a 72-year-old person. And again, you can be 72 years old and fly, so long as you pay attention to your health, get the proper screenings if you have any chronic health conditions. Uh, When you get your medical certificate, speak with your physician about issues you may have that you're concerned about and whether or not that will affect your fly. And there was nothing in there that indicated that he had any medical restrictions. Now, That's the-, the first
0: thing that out to me was that he was behaving like he was having a medical problem, you know, maybe a, a heart attack that, uh, that was just beginning, or, uh, or some other factor, medical factor, that could Im- impact on his performance, because he wasn't responding to air traffic control, when he was still on the ground. And then he, he takes off and, and uh, there's a series of miscues uh, throughout most of this flight. Like and I said earlier, they cleared him to 15,000. He never went up to 15,000, it appears. He never got up that high. He got, about well, 13,000. Maybe he went a little higher. Uh, if, but if,
2: there's a, if there's a medical issue, it doesn't necessarily happen to ha- ha- have to happen during that flight. He could have had something beforehand. And again, a single pilot operation, no passengers. Perhaps there was no one close to them during the time he was going out to the airport and to the airplane that would say to them, hey, you know, you're acting a little bit funny. You sure you're all right? And all of us from time to time feel a little bit sick. And maybe it's just a little thing we can push on through it. Maybe it's not such a little thing. And, you know, an individual, even one who's a medical professional, does not have an objective point of view when it comes to diagnosing their own capabilities when they're sick. So we don't know what was happening in the 24 hours before he stepped into that aircraft. But we do know from looking at the transcript of or the report of his conversation, looking at the behavior of the aircraft, that something was amiss here. And in our opinion, it wasn't the aircraft.
0: I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, to, to, to 10,000 feet in the area, not too far from the mountain, is asking for trouble. And then, and then the spiral dive that he did, uh, he, spiral was about, talking about that.
2: Spiraled about 10 times, going from about 31,000 feet to impacting at about 3,600 feet to MSL. And this was a fairly you know, rapid descent a fairly tight spiral given the kind of aircraft it was. And it's uh, consistent with something taking this airplane out of uh, steady flight. Now, I don't know if he was hand flying the aircraft or whether he was in a, had some sort of autopilot engage, but clearly at some point, it went from a fairly normal flight path to one that slowly spiraled into the ground.
0: You know, after he left the, the, the general vicinity of the mountain, uh, he was heading and climbing. So like you said, he climbed up to over 30,000 feet and then came straight back down at, at, what did you say, uh, 60 miles an hour?
2: Averaging 60 miles an hour straight down. Now, earlier I said that he wasn't high enough to have the effects of hypoxia. Let me clarify and say that earlier in the flight, when he was well below the kind of altitude that would be consistent with that, he was behaving as though he were hypoxic. Doesn't mean he was hypoxic at any point in the flight, but the kind of mental errors he appeared to be making is the kind of thing that is consistent with hypoxia.
0: Right, and that's when the air traffic control was questioning him and he turned to the, uh, to the east and away from the mountain and started to climb. So I, but he must have filed an IFR flight plan to get up at that altitude.
2: Let's put it this way, if you're flying an aircraft, air traffic control tells you to go at a certain magnetic direction, and you're going thirty degrees away from that. That will get their attention, and that's the kind of thing that was happening here.
0: Yes. So then he gets up to thirty thousand, and he comes smacking right back down into the ground. So, well, just like the NTSB report and the other reports in it, that's that's open ended. So there's there's really no conclusion here except a perfectly good airplane was was. Uh, destroyed for what appears to be human reasons and there is no no uh, no solution to that
2: uh, this this event happened about 16 17 months ago and typically it could be a year and a half to two years or more before a final reports issued. even before the final reports issued there'll be a public docket out there about this aircraft. So those of you out there who are interested in following up on this, by all means do so. Um, We'll have enough information available in the show notes and elsewhere where you can look up the tail number, go to the NTSB's website, look up whatever is uh, there about the preliminary report, the final report, any public docket information, any safety recommendations that may come out of this accident. And again, this is a general aviation event, I'm not hopeful, or this is not the kind of event that typically generates a uh, recommendation, but you never know. So if you wanna follow up on it, by all means, please do so.
0: Yes. Okay, well, that ends this discussion on this issue for this week. And I would like to remind everybody that uh, since Greg usually gives me the last word, I'll take the first and the last word. Uh, you know, as I, as I went through, the. The list of accidents, recent accidents, as well as older accidents. One of the things that's been popping out is, and I haven't got the numbers nailed down yet, but a number of accidents, many of which were not fatal, involving a student pilot with an instructor, with aircraft damage. And it's a noticeable number. As you go back and through the, the events in the month of um, you know, previous. So I've been looking at this year and uh, they seem to be popping up all too regular. So if you're out there and you're flying on a student uh, ticket with an instructor or alone in a rental airplane, my best advice to you is get a renter's insurance policy. They're not very expensive and they'll cover you. I mean, it's really important that you do that. So please, if you're flying as a student in a rental airplane or even as a pilot in a rental airplane, make sure you have your own rental operator's insurance because the the company's insurance is going to be for them, not for you. And if there's any gaps, it's, it's on you, too. So you make sure you have a good policy. And Todd... I'll leave you the second last word.
2: Well, I like to remind you, following up on what John just said, there are many insurance companies out there. Our favorite of course is our sponsor of Vemco Insurance. And you'll be seeing the number for Vemco Insurance at the bottom of the screen uh, toward the end. And again, um, please check them out if you're at all interested in doing what John suggests. And given that he has been in aviation for a few years, has seen uh, you know what happens when you don't have insurance. I would highly recommend if you would follow up on his recommendation.
0: Okay, thank you. And to everybody, if you're going to go flying, please, we're in the nice weather time. There's airplanes all over the place today. All right. So if do your pre-planning before you leave the house or the hotel or wherever you are, make sure you check the weather here, there, and in between. Make sure that uh, when you get out there to do a good pre-flight, i I'm, I'm just uh, I'm just been looking over the, some of the data that I collected. I wrote an article recently on wheel trucks and all problems with guys that do a pre-flight and they don't even notice that the wheel trucks are there and then they can't move the airplane or they, they go for a bumpy ride going over them. And, uh, and oftentimes with twins like King Airs, with those nice big spinning props, I just cringe when I see that happening because all we need to have is the prop pick that up and it's, it turns a a sort of a low level event into a big one real quick and so do a good pre-flight and don't forget your tire pressure I've been watching pilots go out there and I I have possibility of two that check tires out of about 60 or 70 uh, the air pressure in the tires. Airplanes that have been sitting out in the field for a week and they come out and nobody checks the tires. They do, they walk around and light the fire and away they go. So please do a very thorough pre flight. And then after you get in the air, as I just said a minute ago, put that head on a swivel and look around because the skies are getting busy and there's a lot of people, a lot of new pilots out there. And new helicopter pilots out there. So please pay attention for them and for yourself.
1: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.